Tonight, I'm going to be talking about, uh, the title is, Are You Open-Minded? Uh, cracking the Door Open for God. So it's really a small, um, a soft case, as it were, to, to argue for the existence of God. It's really a balance of two immoral imaginations, an imagination where it is closed, a closed universe, and a moral imagination where it is open, particularly from the Christian. You know, in fact, title comes from, uh, there was a young woman who came from Quebec. She came from a guy who had just become a Christian. She had never been around Christians before, ever. Uh, she had never been in a wedding. She had never been in a church. She'd never been anything that resembled religion. And Labrie was her very first introduction to Christianity. I went on a walk with her to talk about why are you here and what are you thinking? And, and I said, so your friend's just become a Christian. That's interesting. She's like, yeah, I'm very open-minded. And I was like, oh, that's great. You know, that's fine. And we kept talking and she's like, I was like, yeah, because we believe Christianity is true. I hope that's so, you know, I hope you're comfortable with that. And she's like, yeah, I'm very open-minded. And she kept saying open-minded, open-minded, open-minded. On the fourth time I turned to her, I said, are you so open-minded that you're closed to the gospel? And she just got, she was stunned. And she said, good point. She never referenced open-minded again. Uh, she did become a Christian, actually, in, in the eight days that she spent at Labrie. And I didn't know that for years. Uh, years later, I found out that she had become a Christian in her time at Labrie. So very thankful for that. So that's really where the title comes from. Are you open-minded? It's really a reversal. When people mean open-minded, they're, they're saying, uh, I'm open to science and rational thought and pluralism and uh, different religions, but not necessarily anything exclusive. I'm intolerant to exclusivity. I'm intolerance to intolerance kind of thing. And so I'm wanting to flip it on his head. By You see this image right behind, are you open-minded? Uh, it's, it's an engraving that is from, an, uh, from a book by a 19th century French astronomer named Flammarion. Uh, and you see that there's this medieval pilgrim peering at the heavenlies. You, you see that he is on his knees on the land in this dome of stars, but he's able to peer through it and seeing the, the orbit of, of space and seeing these geometrical shapes. It's this vast, beautiful, unknown realm of space where he realizes that humankind is not at the center. They're simply a part. What has really closed him off from this is religion, the Catholic church primarily. That's what Flammarion is about. And saying that science is the one that has opened the gateways of more knowledge, opening the gateways, um, gateway to, to deeper knowing of reality and meaning. However, there's been a turn. There's been a turn since then that has made science not so open-minded. So this is an image that is uh, from NASA on the Voyager. Maybe you've seen this image. I've shown this a few times. And Carl Sagan, a famous atheist, uh, asked NASA to turn the satellite around to take a picture of the Earth, 3.7 billion miles away. 
And it's a famous image called the pale blue dot. And so really Carl Sagan was wanting to make a point. Despite our egotism, despite our feelings of value, look how insignificant we truly are in the realm of things. Space is so huge. But this has actually been what's happened with the advancement of science. The more we have come to know about the universe, the more insignificant we feel. And so I want to ask, are you open-minded? Are, are we able to recognize a reality beyond just scientific explanation? Scientism, scientific explanations that say we are but cause and effect. All we are is cause and effect. And so my argument is going to try to push us to recognize something that's more than just a strict materialism, a strict scientism. And in fact, this is not just what we see uh, uh, tonight, but we're seeing it among atheists. There was a book in 1994 by Douglas Copeland from uh, North Vancouver, uh, just across the waters there, um, north of Vancouver, just at the foot of the mountains there, very rainy. And it's really almost autobiographical for Douglas Copeland. He grew up in an atheistic family, but he desired for more. And yet his family belittled him, begrudged him for wanting more of life. <clears throat> and so at the very end of this book, it's a very interesting quote. This book is about him searching for meaning. He's listened to the radio. He's on his journey across the countryside, across America. And at the very end, he comes to this. It's one of the last pages in the book. And he says, I tell it to you. It's almost like a diary. It's like a diary, a journal that he, he has as he's traveling. But it's fictional, quote unquote. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you are in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God, that I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem capable of giving, to help me be kind as I am no longer capable of kindness, to help me love as I seem beyond able, being able to love. It's a profound ending to a book by an atheist. And so it was a shocking statement in the 90s. Uh, he was catapulted because he was the one that came up with the term Generation X. But it's, Douglas Copeland is not alone. Now you actually have lots of people following him. You have Thomas Nagel, Mind and Cosmos. You have Julian Barnes, Nothing to be Frightened of. You have Ronald Dworkin, a physicist, Religion Without God. Uh, Peter Watson, The Age of Atheists. Uh, Martha Nussbaum, Political Emotions, um, How Love Matters for Justice, uh, The Faith of the Faithless by Simon Critchley, Alan de Baton, Religion for Atheists, and Hubert Dreyfus and Sean Kelly wrote a book called All Things Shining. And I don't have it, but you can include Jordan Peterson. So why is there such dissatisfaction when science seems to have given us such confidence? So for this, I want to navigate a brief history of ideas 
primarily through these two terms, the porous self and the buffered self. So these are two terms that have come from Charles Taylor, a, a Catholic Canadian philosopher who's internationally well-known in a book called A Secular Age. What he's arguing is that we have moved from a time for the majority of the history of the world, the majority of cultures around the world, that God is obvious. And that in the past, only 500 years ago, that if you did not believe in God, the burden of proof was on you to prove that God did not exist. <clears throat> but now, God is not so obvious. In the past 500 years, you have to say, you have to prove that God does exist. It's just not plausible anymore. And really what Taylor says is that what he thinks is one of the linchpins is early medieval Catholic theology, but really at the Reformation, there was a movement inward. And so before this movement, a person identified as a porous self. So imagine your soul to be like a sponge and you're open to grace and you're open to possession. The gods are everywhere. So you can just pick up Homer's Iliad and just read it. And it's so funny how often gods just show up and disappear, show up and disappear in everyday events. <clears throat> but then there was an inward turn during the Reformation where truth claims were taken inward into reason. It was in the mind. And we have, uh, and so no longer was there external claims of gods or demons on a person, um, only the claims of reason. But this has even further gone inward to feelings. That's where we are now. Uh, the effective revolution where, where policies are even dictated by how one identifies or how one feels rather than even the external claims of reason or biology or whatnot. And so further and further in we've turned. But what Taylor has said is that no longer are we porous, we're buffered. We have all these layers. No longer do we believe that we can be possessed by grace or possessed by demons. We're no longer vulnerable to external forces. And what's happened is that reality has closed in like a box. So imagine the soul locked in a box and there's no opening, there's no windows, there's no doors. It's this existential claustrophobia. Everything is closed in. Imagine us in this room. There is no door. There's no windows. There's only the sides of this box. And there's no way out. And we have to figure out how to live together. And we don't know how we got here. That's existential claustrophobia. That's the buffered self. <clears throat> so let me give you an example that I often show. Is that there was a Time magazine that came out in... Uh, the late 1990s, it's the, it's the annual mind and body special issue called the science of romance. It's saying that science can not only explain how romance and love works, but why it works. So you have this image of this man and woman kissing each other. The woman, gulp, I think we have chemistry. And the man says, I feel my evolutionary biology kicking in. So you have this very closed in explanation of what romance and love is really about. In fact, it's all about being attracted to the shapes of pears or apples 
or upside down triangles. Um, that having kids is just a biological evolutionary pact that we have. And it really struggles to try to have a basis for the ethics of why we do what we do or should do. Um, it's all about how as um, eclipsing the why. So the whole reality of life is closed in into cause and effect. And so we might believe that we're in love, but actually it's just an evolutionary biological mechanism that we are unaware of. So it's not, so you can imagine for Valentine's day, you, you write a card and say, um, honey, I'm so glad my biology kicked in for us. <clears throat> it's not love, but it's still real. <laughs> it's not really something that you put on candy, right? Um, and so it's this idea that we need that evolution has created biological illusions of romance and love in order to make us function. But those illusions of romance, trust, and love are simply that illusions overlaid a meaningless reality where um, personhood and meaning are absent if we really get down to the data, to the facts. So everything is reduced to mechanism. It's created this pressure, an existential pressure. And I think it's really well ex explicated by Stephen Crane, who was an atheist and he was on a boat and he had a boat wreck. And it's a short story. It's one of the best short stories. It's one of my favorites. It's often in anthologies. If you studied English 101, you probably read The Open Boat by Stephen Crane. Uh, and in it, he's in this little dinghy with the chef and uh, a couple other people that survived from the boat wreck. And they're trying to figure out how to get to shore. And they see all these rocky crags. And they're like, there's no way we're going to make it. There's no way we're going to make it to the rocky shore. And then realizes, you know what? We're probably going to die. Um, and he writes when he realizes he's likely to die and likely that nature will not care. That's what he, tr that's what troubles him more than dying, that nature will not care about his death. So he wrote in the story, when it occurs to a man that nature does not regard him as important and that she feels that she would not maim the universe by disposing of him. He at first wishes to throw bricks at the temple, and he hates deeply the fact that there are no bricks and no temples. What he's saying there is nature is indifferent to your living or dying. And being a human person, you hate so much that that's the case that you want to take a brick and throw it at the temple of nature. But the problem is, is that nature doesn't care. And so there are really no bricks and there are no temples you're left with yourself in indifference. So he hates deeply. There's something deeply emotional at this futility. He can't stand that it is meaningless. Or you have Richard Dawkins on the left and uh, medical ethicist C.P. Snow on the right. And Dawkins and C.P. Snow can't handle being consistent to their own scientific presuppositions. Dawkins says in 2003, as an academic scientist, I'm a passionate Darwinian, but at the same time, I am a passionate anti-Darwinian 
when it comes to politics and how we should conduct our human affairs. So in science, I'm a Darwinian, but when it comes to people and society, I'm anti-Darwinian. Or consider C.P. Snow, what he says in the Juridical of Medical Science. It's a longer quote, but I think that you can understand it. I believe that biological life, human life, all life, is an extraordinary chance. The probabilities of such a coincidence are infinitesimally small. So here we are, isolated on our speck, speck of matter, the products of random chance. Now I have to make a complete discontinuity from what I just said. I believe we have to act as if each individual life was significant, as if all lives were, as religious persons have said, equal in the sight of God, as if conditions of other human beings had to be improved, as if there can be a more desirable life for others, and as if doing what we can to achieve that, we ourselves will, um, we will achieve that, we, um, sorry, doing what we can to achieve that, we ourselves will, hmm, I messed up writing this down, I don't know what happened. <laughs> But if we achieve that, we ourselves will live a more desirable life. He's saying, I think life is a chance. It's random, meaningless, random spec. And yet I have to live as if what religious people say, that life matters and that helping people live matters. But I have to have a contradiction in my heart, just as Dawkins have to have a contradiction in his heart, just as Stephen Crane feels this contradiction. And so reality is meaningless, but we have to hold on to the illusion that is meaningful. That's the claim. And so Thomas Nagel came out with a famous book called Mind and Cosmos recently, uh, and he was considered somewhat of an atheistic her heretic because he was kind of a part of the new atheism and came out with his book Mind and Cosmos and says, materialism the, the view that all life is just material that flies in the face of common sense. It's just not common sense to say that life is meaningless and then to strive for meaning. We need to come up with something else. And so for people, it's more than just an academic exercise or philosophical. Rather, people are feeling dehumanized and crushed in upon their souls because it doesn't make sense. They need more. And so I want to suggest there's a reason for that. There's a reason that we long for the universe not to be closed, that we long for it to be open. And so I want to look in two ways. I want to argue for a negative case for openness and a positive case for openness. The negative case is that we cry against injustice. And the positive case is that we cry for joy and we want to give thanks. So let's look at the first one, a cry against injustice, a negative case for openness. And what I wanna look at is one of my favorite writers, short story writer, Flannery O'Connor. Uh, you should know that my undergrad was studying literature and particularly short stories. So I often look at short stories. So Flannery O'Connor, interesting person. Uh, she had lupus um, from early on, lived in her house, um, lived in the house with her mom. Her dad died when she was, just about to turn 16, and she herself would die of the same disease that took her father. And she 
was very intelligent and being Catholic in the Protestant South was an awkward place for her. And so I think that her background really informed her uh, of a faith that wanted to question modern presuppositions or faith presuppositions. And so she, she presumes her audience believes in this modern presupposition that reality is closed, just as I just made an argument for, even though she wrote in the 60s. And she has two main types of characters, the religious sentimental person who just kind of talks about truisms. Well, God must mean it for your good. And, you know, well, God helps those who help themselves or whatever. Those kind of religious truisms people just kind of throw out whether they're true or not. They just live by these kind of sentimental notions. And then the other person that primarily is the educated psychologist who wants to educate people into meaninglessness. Uh, but in both cases, neither believe that God can act. God cannot intervene in this world. And so she wants to show stories that breaks open the box. She wants to show how God intervenes, but she doesn't do it by angels coming. She doesn't do it by healings or powerful rhetoric or even through sentimentality. Rather, she wants to th show through concrete details how stories come to a climactic and traumatic end. Her stories are often traumatic. So a lot of people hate Flannery O'Connor, but I love her for this very reason, that she wants to expose the closeness of our view and perspective by causing a crisis and asking, what is life about? What is the meaning of it all? Um, she loves questioning status quo. And so there was one particular story called Good Country People. And the main protagonist is Joy Holga. She's named Joy, but uh, as a philosophical rebellion against her mother, she names herself Holga because it's the ugliest name she can think of. She wears uh, very hipster-like clothes, but in the 60s, and she does not want to be a debutante. And her neck is kind of crooked reading Heidegger, and she doesn't notice boys and she doesn't notice nature. Um, and Holga is very proud that she believes in nothing. And she underscores that in Heidegger. She believes in nothing. And she's proud of it. Now, there's this young man named Stanley Pointer comes to the door to sell Bibles. He wants to sell a Bible. He's looking for a family Bible and finds out that the mom keeps her family Bible up in the attic. And uh, Holga, Joy Holga, is stomping around. She has a wooden leg. And in her cynicism, she tries to sniff out this naive religious boy who's trying to sell Bibles. But this boy starts sweet talking her. And before she knows it, she's going to meet him at a barn the next day where they can meet in secret. And she's excited because she wants to convert him to nothing, to believe in nothing. She can't wait to spoil this guy's purity and naivety. Well, they show up, they climb up in the barn. He sweet talks her and sweet talks her into taking off her leg her wooden leg, and he thinks that she's real brave. You're real brave. And then as soon as he has the leg, he opens the Bible. And inside his Bible are playing cards, dirty pictures, and whiskey. She's shocked. She thought that he was good country people. So there's a bit of a fight. Uh, he ends up taking, a leg, taking the leg and says, as he's going out of the barn, I believed in nothing long before you were born. 
and leaves and she doesn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> and I think Flannery O'Connor liked that, you know, that's kind of her, what she, she would like. She did not say that, but she thought it. I guarantee you, she thought it. Me and Flannery are tight. Um, what's amazing about this story is that she's confronted by hypocrisy by someone, by a Christian nonetheless. But this person says, I'm not a Christian. I just sell Bibles and take advantage of people who are naive and I can take advantage of you. And so she wants to believe in nothing. But at that moment, she's in a crisis because she doesn't believe in nothing anymore. There's a problem. There's a moral problem. And she doesn't know how to get around it. And this is what Flannery O'Connor wants to do. She wants to confront this. Is there more than your system than nothing or meaningless? Don't you live by a moral framework, even though you want to deny it? So she wants to say in this cry against injustice, you long for more. You also see it in, uh, there's a documentary, a Dutch documentary called All We Ever Wanted. It's a, it's a documentary about four successful Dutch artists. They're attractive. They have financial security. They have shelter. They have everything that they want. And yet they all suffer from depression, anxiety. In one poignant scene, the, the person who's showing the documentary says, so if you went to Africa, do you think that you would have these problems? And he had to think about it. He's like, yeah, I guess I'd just be worrying about, am I going to have food on my plate that night? Am I going to have shelter? But then he paused. He's like, no, no, no. No, the problems are still, he's like, they may be luxury problems, but they're still real problems. They're still existential questions that I have to address because we strive for financial security, shelter, success. And when we get there, we still have the question of self. And so is it all we ever wanted, what we strive for? So despite all the advances in society, despite all the successes, Life is not what it's supposed to be. We strive and long to fulfill our aspirations, but when we arrive, we wonder, is that all there is? Alain de Baton, an atheist, British pop philosopher, says that instead of being resentful, we should do something else. He says, rather than try to redress our humiliations by insisting on our wronged importance, we should instead endeavor to apprehend and appreciate our essential nothingness. What he's saying is, okay, <laughs> just you need to keep your problems in right perspective. If you look out at space and you look out and look at the immensity of your space, nature does not care about you. In space, you're meaningless. Therefore, your problems are also meaningless. Do you understand? <laughs> you get that? Your problems are meaningless. So that might help you. But we cry to know that our lives matter. If our universe is truly closed with us being invulnerable, impermeable to the supernatural, why do we struggle with such cries? Now, unlike many Christians who try to disavow God of any guilt, of pain, and suffering, Flannery Connor took a very different tact. 
I don't know if you noticed. She wants to expose pain and suffering as real, but she sees that it's the reason to believe in God. So many people take pain and suffering in the world as a reason not to believe in God. She says pain and suffering is the reason to believe in God. Because what happens when pain and suffering comes, we realize that life is not in our control, not in our power, and evil exposes that life is not as it should be. And so she argues that there's something inside us that roots for the good, that roots for God to exist in order to make sense of pain and suffering. So pain and suffering don't argue against God, but argue for God. Otherwise, it wouldn't bother us at that fundamental level. And many say that they cannot believe in God because of pain and suffering. Um, but she says that she must, because if she doesn't, then pain and suffering is simply what is. And there is no what should be, no what's supposed to be. What is, is pain and suffering and good. But why do our hearts revolt against that? Our hearts cry for justice to be done, to be accomplished. And we rejoice even if we see justice accomplished after people have died. And we see it later on. Why do we long for justice to be done? So I want us to imagine to open our minds. Can we be open-minded? So here I want us to take an exercise of moral imagination. How might we understand the cries of injustice in a world open to God? How might we live toward one who can and who has responded to justice, just as an exercise of moral imagination? Because this is the Christian understanding, that justice will be accomplished. So what kind of implications do we have? First, we have, first, we see that lament is significant, real, and worthwhile. So it's very unlike Stephen Crane in an open boat, in the open boat, who says there are no bricks and no temples. There is no room for lament because it's closed to the cries of humanity. Instead, in the open universe, we notice that there is something more fundamental than evil. There's something more fundamental than pain and suffering we experience. Before evil entered the world, creation was very good. That's the story of the Bible. As Gerard Manley Hopkins puts it, there lies the dearest freshness deep down things. I'll be getting back to his poem later. But this means that for the Christian in an open universe, that lament is reasonable. It's not an illusion. Because God and goodness is more fundamental than evil. Good has to be more fundamental than evil for lament to be worthwhile, real, and significant. That love, romance, and trust are not illusions overlaid a meaningless reality. So when it fails, we cry out for good reason. The second implication of living in, uh, imagining an open universe in the midst of pain and suffering is that we do not need to be overcome by injustices. And that we can contend against injustices and know that it's good and valid to pursue justice without being overwhelmed by it. I've known some people who have become so justice oriented that they, are, that they become the cause itself and that they're lost in the cause. But the one who knows that God, can, that God is faithful to bring about justice and has shown that, then we know that we can be patient and enduring 
and fighting and contending against justice. Uh, Jordan Peterson speaks about a hero navigating chaos and order and the, hero the, the heroic action of each individual is to contend against pain and suffering, to make the world less sufferable. Not necessarily good, but less sufferable. <clears throat> but my question is, what makes an, what's that? Less sufferable is a word. Yeah, sufferable, you're not even more suffering. More, suffer, more sufferable is like that you can suffer. Oh, it's more sufferable. I'll have to think about that, <laughs> but I'll trust your definition. Um, but the question I have for Peterson is, Without a higher meaning, what makes it heroic or courageous to contend against suffering at all, other than a leap of faith, a leap into the dark? With, um, but with God, there's a basis, there's a framework, a way forward to cry against injustice and to contend toward making it the way it's supposed to be. Um, <clears throat> okay. So, what pain and suffering does is saying this world isn't all that there, there is. There must be more. And C.S. Lewis put it very wonderfully. If I find in myself desires, which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. He's talking about a world that is supposed to be. So that's the first case. That was the negative case for openness. Now I want to turn to the positive case for openness, the, the gift of wonder, joy, and gratitude. So C.S. Lewis, um, since I brought him up already, speaks of joy, quote unquote joy. Um, this isn't happiness, a temporary feeling, kind of like dew on the grass. That, uh, But he's talking about something that when we notice beauty or hear beauty or read beauty, it's painful because it's so good. Uh, the word here that calls out this desire is zenzut. I hope I pronounced that correctly. <laughs> okay. Um, the definition here of zenzut is the inconsolable longing in the human heart for we know not what, or a yearning for a far familiar non-earthly land one can identify as one's home. There's a longing when we see something beautiful that takes us out of our current moment and calls us homeward, calls us to that other world. It stirs the imagination. It stirs memory, a longing for more. It might be experienced on a walk, uh, in the garden, or on the playground. Um, here's Lewis again. He says from Pilgrim's Regress, it's that unnameable something, desire for which pierces us, like a rapier at the smell of bonfire, the sound of wild ducks flying overhead, the title of the well at the world's end, the opening lines of Kublai Khan, the morning cobwebs in late summer, or the noise of falling waves. What is this longing, this longing that we feel, this experience of joy? Um, now, it's not the difficulty to wish for another world where there is no pain and suffering, but a longing to be, to be found in that place where justice reigns and is complete. 
It's in these moments that we're filled with wonder and awe. We have an innate desire in those moments to say, thank you. Wow, thank you. Or to praise something, to praise someone. But to whom may we give thanks? To whom may we praise if the world is really closed? To what end is this desire in human, um, the human self? Where might we find this home, this place where goodness exists, where goodness is unfettered, without taint, without stain? So our hearts cry not just for against injustice, but our hearts cry for a world that is wholly filled with beauty and justice. And so I see three ways that people try to contend, uh, try to grasp this openness, um, to grasp this joy in a closed way. I see it in striving for nostalgia or striving in sensuality or in the personification of nature. Now, you might be able to come up with more. These are three that I thought of. But I think that there are three that give us enough idea of what it means to long for something, but to only find it within the closed universe. The first is nostalgia. Uh, my mother-in-law loves Leave it to Beaver. I don't. And she longs for this time past, these halcyon days of the 1950s when everything was happy. The economy was good. People were kind. Neighborhoods were open. If we could just get back to the 50s. And often nationalism of any country is often fueled by a desire to return to the glory days, whatever you define that glory day as. Um, Woody Allen made a film called Midnight in Paris. Who's seen that? Okay, okay. Well, it's interesting. Uh, Owen Wilson's the actor and he's in the 1990s, I think, or 2000s. And he longed for the 1920s when everything was wonderful and beautiful and fun. And finally, he's, he time travels. He gets to the 1920s. By the way, Owen Wilson sounds a lot like Woody Allen. But anyway, he returns to the 1920s. And he gets there. And everyone in the 1920s longs for the 1880s. And so he time travels into the 1880s. And they long for a time before them. It's this idea that we can get back to the bygone era when everything was great. But now we're no longer there. We're displaced. We're in exile from the good days. And how can we make our lives great again? You, you have Joni Mitchell. Uh, she sang this call, song, Saskatchewan singer. She sang in her song, Woodstock. And maybe if you know this song, you probably hear the song. I came upon a child of God. He was walking along the road. I asked him, where are you going? And this, he told me, I'm going on down to Yasker's farm. That's where Woodstock was. I'm going on down to Yasker's farm. I'm going to join in a rock and roll band. I'm going to camp out on the land. I'm going to try and get my soul free. We are stardust. We are golden. And we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. It's this longing for this nostalgic moment when everything will be right. It's a longing for the past in the present moment. <clears throat> but these longings to get back to a place where something was perfect and ideal is simply an illusion because those places never existed, as we see in Midnight in Paris. Or Lewis talks about Wordsworth, because Wordsworth was a romantic and wants to return almost to this noble, savage image. And C.S. Lewis says this about Wordsworth. 
what Wordsworth remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. So he's saying if you're in the 1990s, the 1920s, the 1880s, or any other time, there's a longing for another place. And we often want to locate it within the temporal. But even if you were able to go there, it's not there. All you find is another remembering, another longing. And so Woody Allen turns out to say what we need to pursue is simply joy in the moment. And so this turns to my second grasp of joy, quote unquote joy. So the first was nostalgia. This one is sensuality. So there's, there's the desire to find something transcendent in outdoor activity or in beauty. What do I want to be when I grow up? Pretty. Love that. Or materialism. I just need more bling. I need more uh, accessories. Um, or sport. David Foster Wallace, who I'm going to mention in a moment, uh, was an atheist who really wrestled with wanting to find something transcendent. And the one thing that he felt was transcendent was sport, particularly tennis. He loved Roger Federer. And his wife found him once crying on the floor before a tennis match and asked him if anything was okay because he had very strong depressive bouts. And he was talking about how beautiful Federer's playing was. He was so enamored by Federer's ability to play. And he grew up playing, a ten playing tennis. You can also see the sensuality in Food Network. Jim Gaffigan, comic, uh, says the Food Network is food porn. Um, or we try to find uh, our transcendence in romance, the next or the next hookup in sex. Or we try to find it in escape through drugs or alcohol. Um, in fact, one person came and said, you know, people today aren't wanting to consume things so much are wanting to consume experience, experience through travel, through, uh, through, through dangerous or risky things. At least they know that they're alive. There's a longing to grab hold of that joy, that other thing. But David Foster Wallace says that this will destroy us. If we try to find a transcendent in the imminent, even in tennis, it will destroy us. He says, uh, he gave this uh, commencement speech at Kenyon College, it's called This Is Water. You can find it on YouTube, fascinating talk. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The sad thing is, is that David Foster Wallace did give up hope. He did yield to despair and he died by suicide. And he was an amazing, and he often, he was 
people love to call him a genius by the way he wrote and he hated it because it, it made him feel worse. And you can hear it here. Because what he sees is that when we worship the things of nature, it will eat us up because nature or anything within nature is insufficient for our longings. It's insufficient to put the weight of longings on those things. And people do it all the time, trying to put all the weight of their joy on relationships, on their children, on family, on their wealth, on their success, whatever it is. And they find themselves to be crushed. There's a third way that we can try to look to the past and to the halcyon days and nostalgia, or we try to look to the present moments. But some try to look to a larger framework to see beauty as nature itself. So we have these naked women. It's a bit blurry. So the pixelation wasn't as good as I had hoped, but it's there. Um, no, you have these women that are around like a Stonehenge-like place and Gladriel apparently is between Stonehenge overseeing the acolytes around the fire, this pagan fire. And it's, you know, I show this because neo-paganism is one of the ways of trying to find nature as something personal. It's commonly particular in the Northwest of the US and Western Canada and on the islands. I've been invited to many drum circles and solstice parties. Now, sometimes these can often end just being sentimental that nature all around us is just seen as beautiful, yet often ignoring the cruel aspects of nature. I think a true honest paganism is when it recognizes cruelty, but in such as that, there's no escape. But often there's a sentimental paganism as a way of trying to embrace uh, nature as something personal and yet um, somehow uh, have difficulty finding meaning. But more often than not, what we see is a scientism, a scientific explanation that the complexity of reality is beautiful enough. Uh, you found this uh, in the movie Creation. I don't know if you've seen the movie Creation. It's about Darwin and his, the publication of Origin of Species. Actors Paul Bentany and Jennifer Connelly. And the whole time is he's struggling to know if he should publish The Origin of Species. And all these people are encouraging him to do it, that the death of God needs to happen. And he's talking to this uh, ghost of a daughter. And she says, uh, why are you so scared? Like, why are you scared to publish this book? And he goes, well, it changes everything. Suppose the whole world stopped believing that God had a plan for us. Nothing mattered, not love, trust, faith, not honor, only brute survival. Apart from anything else, it would break your mother's heart. Hearts can't break silly. You taught me that. It's this really interesting dialogue. He's saying, I'm scared because I'm going to, I'm going to show that God doesn't exist and nothing matters. And then there's like a little, like, instead of holding to the heaviness of that moment, the dialogue says, and it might break your mother's heart at the very least. And she says, hearts can't break, silly. You taught me that. Saying, You're, there's no such thing as sentimentality. It's just raw biological fact. And so the first problem with this dialogue is to suggest that housewives 
and like them, Christians who believe in God are afraid of scientific truth. It's suggesting that, uh, I would argue otherwise. But it also suggests that people fear the truth that God does not exist and that nothing matters. Um, Darwin says that he must find the courage to state that evolution proves that the planet is not guided by a personal and loving God, but is simply moved by laws of physics, closed laws of physics. And as a result, he says that there's a beauty in and of itself. The very last line in the movie, which I don't have written, I don't think. Um, from the war of nature, from famine and death, the most exalted object we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of higher animals, directly follows. There is grandeur in this view of life that whilst this planet has gone cycling on, according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. What he's saying there is there's chaos, there's feast, there's famine, there's death, but has created higher forms of life. And that's grandeur. That's beauty. But again, amazed at what? Who's to say that it has progressed? Amazed at complexity? For what end? Shakespeare says, sound and fury signifying nothing. I mean, you can meet a person who's a complex mess. <laughs> and so evolution often attaches itself to a story, to a narrative, to say that it's going somewhere. But the theory of evolution is that it's impersonal and non-purposeful. And so there's cheating. There's cheating involved trying to give a story to evolution and also to personalize nature. You see... Um, Ronald Dworkin, an astrophysicist, uh, or at least a physicist, wrote, the Grand Canyon is an extraordinary kind of accident. It is part of what we take to be a great, even noble story about creation and evolution, whose author we personify as nature. He can't stand that the beauty and the grandeur of the Grand Canyon is an accident, and that his desire and his longing is an accident. So he has to personify nature. Francis Crick, the guy who discovered DNA, did the same thing. And Francis Schaeffer, uh, uh, the guy who helped start Labrie, um, calls him out on this. Says Crick personalizes, and so we could actually say Dworkin as well, Crick personalizes what by definition is impersonal according to his own system. Why? because he can't stand the implication of impersonality and because this kind of semantic mysticism gives relief to people caught in the web of the impersonal. What he's saying is that Francis Crick has to call nature, capitalize nature with a capital N. You saw that with Dworkin as well, right? <clears throat> or in talking about the story. <clears throat> they can't stand that nature is impersonal and is indifferent to their existence. So they want to personalize it. And, there, and then they created, the, and so what Schaefer says, this is a semantic mysticism. They're using language to create the illusion of meaning, which is actually deceitful because they can't stand living into their own presuppositions. That reality is closed and is indifferent to their longings. 
So how might we think of implications of an open view for longings for joy, longings for Thanksgiving? This is where I'm going to end. <clears throat> so first, we see a reason for our desire to give thanks and praise. So Thanksgiving is not an aberration, it's not contradictory, but it fits part and parcel of living before someone to whom we can give thanks. So sometimes people want to thank the universe because they want to thank someone, but they don't want to have the obligation of thinking a person. Consider the Grammys. <clears throat> you have this image of Katy Perry here, raising her left hand like a worship leader. You see Jesus tattooed on her left wrist. It says Katy Perry, by the grace of God, live at the Grammys. But there was an article called God at the Grammys in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago. And the article was talking about how the vast majority of people thanked God at the Grammys. The number one person thanked was God. Um, and he says, and the, the person who wrote this, the journalist said, the reason so is because whenever asked, like Lady Gaga, Snoop Dogg, even at the porn awards, God is the number one person thanked. And what they're trying to do is trying to wrap their minds around their success, how they've been successful. There's been plenty of people with talent who have never been discovered. And these people feel like, why me? And they feel like there must be an explanation of why they're there and not someone else. And so they often want to thank someone and they thank God, even if their life does not represent it or reflect it in any way. Because without thanks, we just feel self-entitled. Alain de Baton, uh, the British atheist, says modern secular optimists with their well-developed sense of entitlement fail to savor everyday life. We might suppose that this is because there's no one to say thank you to. He's saying so many people in the modern day world are self-entitled and dominate the world because there's no one to say thank you to. And Alain de Baton struggled with this. He doesn't really know how to answer it in his book, Religion for Atheists. And so when we don't have someone to give thanks to, we, we uh, dominate the world. He says, imagining ourselves to be the commanders of our own destinies, trampling upon nature, forgetting the rhythms of the earth, denying death, and shying away from valuing and honoring all that slips through our grasp. He's saying when we don't have someone to say thank you to, it's so easy to exploit. What is to keep us from exploiting if we don't really have someone to think? But with an open universe to a personal God, we have someone to whom we can give thanks. It makes sense for our longings. It fits. If you start with the moral imagination that a personal God has created, then our thanksgiving fits with that longing. It's not contradictory. It's not an aberration. And so this reason to give thanks is uh, that we have a reason, but also it gives us a reason to steward what we've been given. That stewardship is not just of money or even of life, but even creation itself. And so just I'm going to show three psalms, uh, uh, part, part, parts of three psalms, and just listen to how it views creation from this open point of view. He waters the mountains from his umber chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate. 
bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, the stork has its home in the junipers. It's this beautiful reflection. And you see that humanity is just one part of a larger framework. And that it shows that God is caring and tending even for the things that we are unaware of. That human interest doesn't even show. But when we reflect, we see that they're already being cared for. There's room for Thanksgiving in Psalm 104. Then Psalm 148. Let them praise the name of the Lord. So the psalmist is calling on all of nature to praise God. Not just humans, but even nature itself to praise God. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and women, old men and children. The psalmist has a longing to praise, and there's room because there's a God to whom we may give thanks. Often we're stuck singing our songs in our heads in the car to ourselves. Unless you're a good singer, then you roll down the windows. <clears throat> or if you're me, you just kind of double pale, you know, double pains. You know, you don't want anyone to hear you sing, especially the big solo, you know. You know. <laughs> and then Psalm 8. <clears throat> When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. How different this is from Carl Sagan's pale blue dot. How different it is from Alain de Botton, who says, appreciate your utter nothingness or meaninglessness when we are open to god our hearts can sing it finds the right place for those longings it makes sense of those longings the third so the first was reason to to give thanks there's a basis for thanks there's a reason to steward it and then a reason for the hope of goodness and so earlier I said that what is does not constitute what should be or what's supposed to be. But if we take on the moral imagination that the Bible gives us, we see good reason not only to believe uh, in the fundamental goodness of reality. If we take on the moral imagination that the Bible gives us, we see good reason to believe that goodness is most fundamental to reality. Because it's rooted in its creator. But we also have good reason to know that goodness will win out. Not only is its origin, but it's also its end goal. And because we know that God is not overwhelmed by the chaos and the pain and suffering, but he has victory over it. And so uh, I'm going to uh, leave us with this poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins, and he's looking out and he despaired of the Industrial Revolution that was overtaking England. 
And, but he looks out and he has a reflection on how might he see nature in spite of all this destruction? Can he believe in the fundamental goodness of God? And so he wrote one of the most famous poems ever written. And he didn't know he died before it became famous. He was never famous in his own life. But this is his uh, poem, The Grandeur of God. And then I'll conclude. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shocked. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshness, deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with awe bright wings. This is a person who is open and sees that in spite of man's smudge and smell and trotting of generations, that he, his hope has not been taken away because the Holy Ghost broods over with warm breast and with awe with bright wings. So with the closed universe, we're stuck with pain and suffering as a part of what is, and stuck um, not being able to give thanks to the longings we have when we... Um, uh, when we are filled with wonder and awe. Yet when there is open, it all finds its place. Life is not all that there is. There is what is, but there is also what should be and what God will bring to it. Pain, suffering, and injustice do not have the final word to the one who is open to God. And also life is not used, used but held as a gift because there is a gift giver to whom we can be accounted. And so hopefully, like the medieval pilgrim, we see in this picture, we can emerge through the clouds and witness a more open reality. <clears throat> okay, so thanks. Uh, at Labrie, this is a time for discussion or comments. You don't have to agree with me. That's not the exercise of this moment. Uh, but to open a conversation for us to work things out of what I said, okay? Yeah, that's great. That's great. So Alejandro is just saying, how can we argue for Christian virtues like chastity and uh, marriage between a male and a female, uh, between many unpopular virtues in today's society? And, and how can we argue for them without falling into nostalgia? Um, or even a, just an empty-minded traditionalism? Well, I think that's such a good question. Um, you know, sometimes it is good to be conservative in that we want to conserve what's been passed down to us, and we want to be faithful what's been passed down to us. But we don't want to be receive things unreflectively, unthinkingly. And believing that God exists, that God continues to speak, that God continues to act, that we can still think creatively 
about how to communicate those things. So it's not like I need to go to Paul, the apostle Paul, and try to use his apologetics for a Greek world when I'm in Colombia or when I'm in Canada, because it, it, we serve the same God, but we don't have to use the same techniques because we're open to God giving us the language, giving us the words and helping us understand how is God communicating these Christian virtues uh, into today's society. Uh, I would also say that if they are in fact true, then they are based on eternal truths. And so these eternal truths should be able to be communicated in new and fresh ways. And so we need to find the basis, not just uh, society was this way and we've lost that way and we need to get back to the way society was. Rather, this is why chastity is good. This is why marriage between a male and female are good. This is why uh, forgiveness of debts is good. This is why slavery is bad. Something like that. Uh, so I think that we need to think uh, not just creatively, but be open to God being at work in us to knowing how to communicate those in fresh ways to fresh ears. So we can still argue for the same thing. It just, it just uh, shapes the way that we talk about them. And sometimes we'll talk about those things and the culture will just be closed to them. Uh, sometimes we have to preach the word in season and preach the word out of season, um, as Paul puts it in one of his letters. So do you want to say something to that? Oh, okay. okay. Have a go. I just have a comment. Um, I took my wife and I rode to Islandview Beach today. And as I was going up the hill, the big hill, I actually had music in my ears, but I heard and saw all these geese, about a hundred. Like they were in a beautiful formation. There's about three of them just spanning across the whole sky, coming home, going north. And it just, I stopped my bike. So that quote we read from C.S. Lewis, the unnameable something, desire something, desire for which pierces us like a rapier, at the smell of bonfire, the sound of loud guts, and it took my breath away. Mm. I had, I tried to catch it on, on film. It, you can't capture it, but I just wanted to keep it. And I was able to just say, Lord, just to praise him in that moment. So that's all. I just, it happened. To Thanks. Me. Yeah. Abigail was just talking about this moment where she was riding uphill from the beach where she was staying um, or visiting. And, uh, and there was a wild, or there were geese that flew over, hundreds of geese flew over in formation. And she had to pull to the side and just capture that glorious moment. And that it made you, like when you heard the C.S. Lois quote about that unnameable thing, yeah. really strikes the same, it pierced you like a rapier. Yeah. And I did have someone to thank, to give praise to. Yeah. I don't know how that would be if I didn't have if I didn't have anyone greater than myself. Right. Yeah, thank you. Yes, Brett. Could you say that nostalgia is actually a way of yearning for uh, transcendent truths? Because when you look back to the golden age of the middle ages and you know um, and uh, the stories and so on, or look ahead to the science fiction stories, 
you know, you think of uh, Star Wars, which is actually looking back yes. a long time ago, but it's looking forward yes. as well. But you have, you know, these clashes between good and evil and the importance of goodness and so on. Couldn't, isn't, isn't even in that nostalgia, isn't there a search for the transcendent? Yeah, so in the search for the better days, mm-hmm. I do think is a search for the transcendent. Uh, and what I was trying to say is that it becomes an idol when you think that you compare everything to that past moment as if it were that past moment, everything would be right and good. But, um, and so that's why C.S. Lewis says, if you get to that past time, you just find another longing Uh, because uh, yes, that longing to that, that longing to that past moment points us toward what we want God to do is to restore justice. Uh, and I think, I mean, I agree with Joni Mitchell. Uh, let us get back to the garden, except that I'm wanting, I'm longing for the gardened city. Uh, so it's not only looking back, but in that longing, I think Joni Mitchell is saying, I, I need something more. Uh, and she knows that it's a transcendent longing, but she's looking for it at Woodstock. Yes, Martin. Just picking on Abigail's uh, geese um, and C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis spoke also, or wrote also, about the difference between happiness and joy and saying how happiness is inside. So if you're happy at seeing the geese, well, great. But he says that joy is something that is inside of you. Happiness is outside, joy is Mm. inside. Mm. And so by being able to say, thank you, Lord, for wow, you're really not dealing with the outside at that point. You're doing the inside. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. You mentioned about Darwin uh, when he published his book, uh, you know, being concerned that this would do away with faith uh, or or Christianity, religion. but I don't see why you necessarily come to that conclusion, not arguing the accuracy of evolutionary theory. I, it's just that uh, if we had evolved with 12 fingers instead of 10, you know, would God not be able to work through us? You know, if we had evolved differently, mm-hmm. you know, what difference does it make? You know, isn't it, 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 it it's God in our heart as opposed to worrying about um, being, I think looking at a God that is active in the world now, where he, he works through his heart, works through his people, you know, is a lot more important than being so concerned about well, God as creator, you know, because in, in the end, it doesn't really matter how God created. Right. So, um, yeah, so not to argue the merits of particular theories of evolution, but just the idea of why does the theory of evolution have to erase the joy of God or the joy of God's working? There should be no connection. And it's because um, in one way it eradicated the God of the gaps ideas. And so God of the gaps is we identify God's supernatural action, wherever science has not yet explained it. And before origin of species, there, um, uh, I mean, there were, there were, as I understand it, certain kinds of theories of evolutionary theories before Darwin, but Darwin had kind of his masterpiece. Uh, but it was 
scattered here and there, and it wasn't really well known um, in the same way as Darwin made it. But the idea was that Darwin was saying, we don't need God to be a part of this because we can point and find within the mechanism of natural laws themselves the explanation for life, for progress, for these things. And so God no longer becomes necessary for the explanation. Uh, so that's when people are like, well, we can say good riddance to God. Um, uh, but it's the same as uh, Copernicus. As soon as, as soon as he said, no, the earth revolves around the sun rather than the sun around the earth, uh, there were criticisms that, well, you're denying revelation, biblical revelation, because it says that the, the sun rises and sets, and that means the sun moves. God laid down a foundation and it shall never be moved, taking these biblical passages as, um, as scientific facts rather than literary expressions um, of what God purposed creation to be and these kind of things. But as soon as that happened, uh, you can see a reason for people to say, oh, uh, I thought, you know, I didn't know that the earth revolves around the sun. Therefore, the Bible must be wrong and God must not exist. You could take it that way. But generations later say, oh, actually, we, 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 mis we misread, misinterpreted, misunderstood. Um, I think it's the same with the theory of evolution, except if we take theory of evolution to have no need for God's continual sustenance, provision, and direction. Because the theory of evolution, um, for Darwin, it, it, it is a non-purposeful, I mean, or at least how it was developed, as non-purposeful, non-directive, or at least not along some human directive, uh, and impersonal. It's just within the mechanisms of physics. It's just cause and effect. But the Christian would say, and as you were saying, well, yeah, I mean, evolution could be at work, but God is working through it and purposes it. So, so, um, so when I was talking about the scientistic way of looking at reality through the theory of evolution is removing the need for God, removing the need for his continual intervention, uh, because it is really a closed universe with how most people view theory of evolution. Darwin himself agreed that basically you had to start off with a, like a male or female salary. You had to have something to start the whole process off with. And, and he had no explanation for that. Right. But see, start. the thing is, he doesn't have an explanation for that. But let's say this. Uh, and people are like, aha, see, God, you know, God still exists. But as soon as you explain why that is necessary by some natural law, then you remove God in that case. Well, yeah. It's, so then they, they used to, the, you know, the God of the gaps yeah. that you mentioned. But there's science of the gaps, too. Yeah. You know, I've, I've had this argument with non-theists, and you know, they, you know, they'll they they're just ready to use science of the gaps. You know, when they when they can't explain something, they're they're quite happy to throw in what's just because we haven't discovered it yet. Just going to take more time. Yeah, and and in some way, I mean that that is some humility that scientists need to have to say, well, science is not complete. But it's still looking, it's, it's, it's idea is to, to, to still be working out and to reconfigure uh, going through these paradigm shifts. Uh, Einstein's theory of relativity changed everything. And then even now, like 
uh, quantum mechanics and everything it's just it's changed how we uh, view how things are done and yeah so science does adjust and adapt it's not making a claim but when you say that science explains everything uh, then that's when you're starting to make a metaphysical claim that science doesn't bear out mm. so that's what you can question well scientism scientism and so yeah. if it's science of the gaps in that way that there is meaninglessness um, that everything is meaningless uh, and I can prove it because see, I show you one plus one equals two. You don't need God for that um, or whatever, even though next week is the Christian view of math. We'll see what <laughs> he has to say. Cool. But, but the real reason is that it, the theory of evolution was removing the God of the gaps for people. And so people who place their faith in the gaps that science doesn't explain, as soon as science explains it, then God disappears. And theory of evolution was explaining that there were no gaps that science was able or eventually able to explain all things. Um, and there was no need for God to make it move. Well, there's go. so many things that science can't begin to explain. Like, why should I care about some orphan child in Africa? You know, I've got, I, 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 my gene pool would be a lot further ahead, you know, and, 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 and my standard of living might increase my, my benefit. But basically, if we just went over and slaughtered everybody in Africa, and we would then have access to all the resources. That is an argument, a social Darwinistic argument. But I mean, other people will argue there's uh, uh, social evolutionary benefits from altruism as well. Not so much to altruism, but to, but to cooperation. In to cooperation, form, form, collaboration. Group. But then the group right. itself is subject to Darwinism, right. you know, where it looks after the self, after the group. Yeah. Yeah, Julia? Thank you. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you teach in suffering um, to the to the evidence for God that, that we can lament? Um, can you talk a little bit about um, just the need that that God can to suffer with us and with us? So, so just talk about God suffering with us. Well, how does that, um, like, why does that matter? Why does it matter to say that God suffered with us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I mean, because sometimes, uh, even this morning, we're talking about evil. And some people talk about the problem of evil. Uh, I was very thankful for one of my colleagues saying, there's no such thing as the problem of evil. It's the mystery of evil. We're not given the origins of evil. And the solution to evil that we are given in the Bible, because uh, uh, sometimes we try to come up with ration, uh, rational explanations of why there's sin, I mean, why there's suffering and evil in the world. Um, N.T. Wright says that uh, that is unexplainable because it is irrational. The world is created to be rational and sin and suffering has caused um, a distortion in that order and by default is irrational. And so that, that corruption in the world is an irrational force. And so you can't just explain the problem of evil and suffering through these things. Um, and so Christians are often uh, rightly troubled on how to address the real issue of pain and suffering in people's lives, especially when it gets personal. But I'm very thankful to see that when God responded to evil is that he came among us 
and shared our suffering, learned perfection through suffering and or obedience, even through suffer, um, to the point of suffering, and that he took on not just our sin, but the, the shame and the pain and the suffering that that causes onto himself so that we might be restored fully um, uh, uh, when the kingdom of God is fulfilled or fully arrived. So that means that God does not just give us an answer from the heavens, but that he, his answer to evil was, um, so we have the mystery of evil and God responds to it by providing a deeper mystery that he would take on suffering. He would come in and, and he would suffer himself to have victory over it. And so God doesn't just give an explanation for why there's suffering, but takes it on. And so Jesus himself is the response to suffering is himself takes on that pain um, and shame. So, yeah. So, so that's, that's a different way of looking at suffering. I think it's the best when I see someone sitting in front of me and they've suffered abuse, they have suffered all these things. I'm thankful for Jesus dying on the cross not just because he saves me from sins, but because I know my God cares enough that he, that he took on suffering on himself, that he shared in that. Um, and not only shared in that, but had victory over it through the resurrection. So I think it matters a lot. Thanks for bringing that up. Alejandro. How do I think about how New Age responds to? How is the Christian response better than New Age? Because New Age recognizes mystery, it recognizes suffering. Well, I would say it doesn't. Uh, I think in, um, if you, if you pride open new age is very difficult because it's so slippery. In fact, Irving could talk about this much better than I could, but, um, but new age is the problem with new age is it doesn't have an external there is not open. It's still a closed framework. Um, it's, it's closed because what is, is what's supposed to be. Um, you have good forces and dark forces. It is the eternal dualism of good and evil at work. Uh, and so I think, frankly, it's a dishonest way of saying, you know, you can say, well, it doesn't matter which way you go, because in a sense, it's all the same difference. It's within a closed. But the Christian is very different saying, actually, our help, you know, um, there's many Psalms that say my help comes from the mountains. My help comes from the Lord. Um the Lord is a refuge. It's because there's something outside. God sits, you know, in the midst of political chaos and turmoil, God sits on the throne. That's very different for the Christian than the new age person, because it's the self that sits on the throne, uh, but, but not God. God comes, God, the, the Christian believes that God comes from the outside. God speaks and God acts and, um, and can make changes and that God, um, is not um, is not dethroned by the vicissitudes of life or like by history by the changing of of history 
the rise and fall of nations, God remains king. Um, Irving, I know that you know quite a bit about the new age. Do you, can you explain just briefly how, how you might answer that? Do you know the question? Can you repeat the question, please? Yeah, so Alejandro was saying that... Um, what was the question again? The, the question is that, um, that how it seems like the new age person would basically agree with everything I said in terms of mystery and suffering, but also that there's many ways that, but it's all ways are spiritual. And so they feel themselves to be very open. Is that right? Well, I mean, I think it's difficult to say because new age is a sort of concoction of things. Yeah. And um, there's no quite, there's not a clear agreement about what's the new age. It emerged right. in um, the early 1970s. The idea of new age came in to um, explain new spiritualities, which had their roots in actual fact in the theosophical movement of the late uh, 19th century with Helena Blavatsky. Mm -hmm. And in the 1920s, they took up the term new age and started using it for their ideas, which were basically theosophical. So it's a mishmash of spirituality. Theosophy itself was um, supposedly something that Blavatsky discovered by going to Tibet and talking with a Tibetan right. Lama. And uh, she came back uh, and to Europe and then she settled in India and uh, concocted this system of belief, um, which changed over time. Um, and almost anything could come into it. And the New Age movement was sort of a late to development of that. Um, it had this revival in 1930s, and then in the 1960s, it came back again. Um, but you're quite right. I mean, it, there's, there's no really solid basis for uh, the New Age beliefs. There is a movement that um, took in all sorts of beliefs and said, well, we're New Age. Right. But one New Age person, if you interview. So Carla and I did interviews with New Age people. I don't know if she wants to comment on it. And... No, I don't think I want to comment on the New, on new Age. But Irving is right. It uh, takes um, beliefs from here and there as this sense of realism. And um, I think John, uh, especially the Gospel of John, goes into that a lot. I, I've just been reading a bit of that, but unfortunately I cannot quote verses or anything like that. But uh, this realism is when you understand, of course, uh, uh, Christ meeting the cross and all that, that we enter phases or, or situations of severe pain, uh, but that we can uh, take it and understand it with a sense of being in touch with reality. And in that, um, just taking it that there are these moments of quiet joy that are just a surprise. Uh, and I think 
this kind of realism, uh, this uh, understanding that things come this way and that way, that's life. That's the way life is. Um, and yet uh, that uh, quiet knowledge that, um, um, that yes, in the end you, you accept it, you, you take the pain, but you actually find yourself at moments just smiling. And I, I think one feels, knows, the, one is grateful for the faith that Christianity allows us to have. Right, yeah. I mean, that's it. Yeah, I think New Age was a catch-all phrase. Um, that's right. It was used in the 1920s and 30s, as I said. Um, it then sort of died down. I mean, the war knocked it out of everyone's consciousness. And then it came back in the 60s. And it was the same people who had been practicing it in the 1930s that revived it. And they then passed it on. Um, and they, um, in particular, there was, oh, that guy who went to Japan. Um, it was connected quite strongly with, um, although people aren't aware of this, but there was a, a, a sharp connection, a strong connection between the New Age movement and National Socialism, or the yeah, yeah. Uh, beliefs of National Socialism. And there's a famous philosopher, German thinker, who was act very active in Germany. He went to um, Japan, and there he encouraged D.T. Suzuki to come to the West and spread these ideas. And then he went to India and he was connected with Padupada, the founder of Krishna. So the whole thing was sort of um, concocted um, by this man, and I've forgotten his name, I'm afraid. Hmm. Yeah, so, so have I forgotten his name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even know it, so. Such a long time ago that we did that research, you know, so I never thought it would come up again. <laughs> yeah, I thought the wage died out, actually. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, uh, westernized forms of Eastern religion and the New Age are quite strong in Western Canada. Now you mean? Now. Ah, uh, yeah. But they're very westernized forms. Yes, no, they are very westernized forms. And if you talk to a real a Buddhist or someone, they, they'll be quite, uh, well, they'll be extremely critical of them. A friend of ours is a, teaches Buddhism at the university and he's a practicing Buddhist and he's got absolutely no time for these things. He says they're just a mishmash of nothing and uh, I think that's true. I mean we all have imagination and fantasy uh, but you see this is this is the value of Christianity is that uh, this profound sense of realism that's a part of it. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I, I don't have expertise in that. Yeah, you've got to work hard on that. No, 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 thank you. I thank don't. You. Alejandro? Okay, okay. What do you think of the argument about you have suffering because without suffering, you can't, you can't also have joy as an option. You can't have evil. You can't, if you don't have evil, you can't have good. I totally disagree with that. Because um, I believe in a heaven that will have no suffering, yeah, that's no uh, no evil. Yeah. Uh, I mean that becomes an an eternal dualism because that's how we experience it. We juxtapose good. We understand goodness 
by um, uh, by evil. We, we put them side by side to kind of see it in sharp relief to try to understand what they are. But uh, I think that we can imagine a world of goodness with without evil. And in fact, I think we can imagine a world of evil without goodness, though I think it is difficult to do so, but I think that our imaginations can go there. I don't think that we need suffering to appreciate goodness, though suffering can make us appreciate, it's just not necessary. Yeah, well, it's the, it's the, it's the dualistic thing. I, and I, I agree with you know, somehow you've got to hold the fact that we can have in this world, we can have good and evil, and we can choose between them. And, but in the next world, where's the choice? <laughs> you know, that it's, it, it's all good. Yeah, you know, and but, but you can still have, it can be all good and still have choice. Agency is not taken when the world is all good. Yeah, it's, it's something I... Because you don't have to have an evil choice in order to be free. Yeah, I get it. But I I guess in the end, for me, I just have to take it on faith. I mean, Adam and Eve had, uh, they didn't have freedom because they had the the tree that they had the prohibition. Mm -hmm. They had freedom whether the tree existed there or not. Yeah, but at that point, did they they have, they they had the choice to to take the fruit off the tree. They had that choice. They had that freedom. But it's not necessary. To say that it was doesn't mean that it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, there's there's different ways of playing music. There's different ways of writing a book that embody our personality, that embody the um, structure of reality. Um, I mean, I'm always amazed at you can take a piano and think about thousands of years and how the piano has been played so differently in so many different ways in different cultures. And I think that we'll still have, and I would dare say an infinite amount of way of playing the piano or thinking about the piano, because as long as there's humanity, there's going to be a new way of looking at it. So I don't think that our freedom is contingent on disobedience. Irving. Yes, I was thinking, I I should have added, and this is an ad actually, um, anyone interested in the new age, Carl and I published a book, Understanding Cults and New Religions. The original title was actually Understanding the New Age, but Zondervan thought, or no, rather Erdman's thought, cults and new religions would sell better. So they changed the title, which really I was quite a little bit irritated with. Well, we, we have that book in our library. Right, yes, and that deals with the new age. Okay, wonderful. I can pass that on. Righto. Thank you. Yeah. Or you can just buy it. <laughs> just send your money straight to Carla and Irving. Let them have a coffee here or there. <laughs> well, actually, I, if someone looks somewhere. I've got it up as a PDF on the web somewhere for free. So I think it's on my web page. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay. Yeah. Good. Tim. Just on the the relationship between um, positive effects, how it's perceived in a scientific modern sense um, versus in like the ancient biblical conception, how that seems to be that the modern conception of cause and effect doesn't leave room for God's agency once you understand the cause and effect relationship and what caused it from a natural sense. 
then we tend to say, well, it just happened. But it seems like in biblical texts, they have maybe not the same understanding of the scientific causes of things, but they saw, but they did understand that there were causes and effects. Yeah, so how might we understand cause and effect in the modern sense? Because it seems like this is the thing that is closed, that causes to close God out or believe that we're closed in. Right, so the modern cause and effect seems to deny or, or close out God, where ancient understandings of cause and effect, because they obviously believe in cause and effect, but it doesn't seem to deny uh, to deny God in the same way as what I'm saying, the modern cause and effect is. That's the, yeah. so. How can I explain that? Yeah, that's really good. That's a really good question. Uh, you know, the ancient world did believe in cause and effect, but like Taylor was saying, that it was it was, um, and we still find it in many cultures even today, is that they're nature gods. Mm-hmm. Cause and effect is um, uh, there's deities that need to be appeased. And so there was a sense of cause and effect in the ancient cultures or in more natural or not natural animistic or polytheistic cultures. You start having gods as the cause um, and the effect. And so that's why you have these habitations or these um, the ablutions or the things that you need to do to satisfy because you have these rain dances or maybe the crops aren't growing because you haven't made the proper sacrifices. Uh, you see that in Homer's Iliad and Odyssey as well. Uh, so there was a sense of gods being at work in the cause and effect in the ancient world. Uh, but I would say there's actually some similarities between the ancient polytheistic view of cause and effect and the modern one, the secular strict materialistic view. Um, there are obvious differences, which I just kind of stated. There was just natural laws, but now, but back then you said that gods caused it because they're upset or because they're happy or whatever. But, um, but the Christian would have disagreed with the modern and the ancient. Uh, And people point to Christian thought, the Judeo-Christian worldview as opening up the beginnings of modern science. Because modern science was not possible in the ancient world because it was so deeply religious. And so you wanted to be careful not to do certain things because it might upset certain gods and ruin society or the crops or whatever, fertility. And so, um, but the Christian views, and, and so in the similarity between that is all of it is locked in to a closed universe. So, so even this polytheistic view is that you're locked in and saying, okay, what do I do? But the Christian was freed by believing that God was the creator, but not to be confused with creation, that there's a distinction between the creator and creation. And that creation was a gift of God. And so how we treated it reflected our relationship to God, but was not to be confused as God himself or a pantheistic view where, um, or panentheistic view where, in both that creation is subsumed as being a part of God or being or, or aspects of God. And so, but the Christian was like, no, it's, it's a gift. And so now we're not fearful of making the gods angry or happy because we know our creator. And so now I have a freedom to engage the world. And 
furthermore, to believe that uh, that this God who's revealed himself is a God of order. And so I know that I can have an expectation that if I study this cause, then I can predict this effect. That's, that's, that's modern science, but that's not ancient science in, in a polytheistic sense, because the cause might be an angry God, rain is the effect. Uh, and so the, to study that is very difficult. It's very arbitrary sometimes. Because sometimes the rain comes, sometimes they're not. Is someone did someone sin, or I mean, or did someone not um, bow or give enough, or did I not give enough? Um, so that's what you hear on, you know, Odysseus trying to sail the sea, the Aegean Sea, or whatever it was. Um, and so, but it was the Christian view that God created. That's not to be confused with creation, and that God created an orderly universe that Christians were early on able to investigate the world and to drive an understanding of cause and effect. The problem came later on, uh, and Taylor talks a lot about this in a secular age, where um, the confusion is, okay, God created these laws. Uh, imagine the watchmaker. I mean, that's like a 19th century explanation, but just take that view in saying, let's say that I created a watch and I gave it to you. And you're like, is this a good watch? I'm like, it's perfect. But I'm following you around all the time because I'm constantly tinkering with it. And you're like, this isn't a very good watch if you have to constantly. I know it's a perfect watch or a good watch if you never have to mess with it. Mm -hmm. So the idea came that, uh, so is God causing these things, these natural laws? Is he behind them? Or did he create them to work on their own? And that was the discussion. And Taylor says that they shifted to moving just toward natural laws and slowly and slowly remove God from any explanation uh, that the creator is not a part of sustaining. So, so, so there is the ancient view of cause and effect where you have paganism or you have ritualism, pantheism to a Christian view. The creator created a, a gift that is orderly and we can investigate what God has made so that we might understand him better understands ourselves better. And then the modern view where it's strictly natural law cause and effect, and there are no needs for gods. It seems like in the ancient, I'm, I'm thinking just in the Psalms, like imagery, is it just imagery or is it actually like, I remember um, in, in Jeremiah, the one phrase that stuck out to me, he was talking about the rain. Um, and he said, does it rain just by itself? No, God, you cause it yeah. to rain. It seems like that was, that's more the ancient, I'm, I'm thinking more the ancient Christian, or not ancient, ancient Hebrew mindset seems to be that God was actively causing, you know, it to rain or not rain. And I think it seems to be more than just imagery. Right, but it wasn't in the pagan sense. So um, you can say, um, let's say a child asks, how does rain happen? You start talking about the cycles of water. Um, but, but it would be just as right to say God created rain. God causes it to rain. And so that's where, you know, saying it's natural law or God is not a right choice. Um, and so even in the Bible, you see, yeah, God causes to rain, but he also has, but it also talks about 
the things that he has set in place, that the, that the, the sun praises God because it, it does its course. It does what God created it to be. And that's one of those ways that it praises God. It's not that it has a voice. I don't know if rocks literally praise God um, in a sense of having consciousness. I'm not going to go that far, but I do know that rocks praise God for being rocks, uh, for being what they were made to be. Um, and so you can say that God causes these things, that God is at work in um, uh, at work in the world, causing things to rain, giving sunshine to the wicked or the righteous. So God is so God is the primary source, but the means of how He does it might be explained through condensation uh, or whatever, mm -hmm. evaporation, and whatever the third one is. Yes, Alejandro. Or before that, yeah. So God was removed before the 19th. He said it was medieval Catholic arguments that between voluntarism and nominalism that really changed, made the change. So like 15, 14, 1500s. They're, they're displaced, displaced, not removed, but displaced. Uh, and so God was still nominally there, but, uh, but that was, but Taylor wants to say that that was the first movement. And then he points to the reformation and the enlightenment as a further movement, but he can, but he points to Catholic theology. Yeah, Newton believed in God. Yeah. I'm not saying that they were not believing in God. I'm not saying that they became atheists. What they what happened is that they tried to understand how God related to the laws. And so they made a movement where the laws were not in need of God's babysitting. Oh, I see. Okay. He created them for to function on their own, but God still very much existed. God was still the creator. Uh, God was still necessary um, to understand purposes, but we don't always just have to turn to the Bible. We can turn to the laws, the, the natural laws themselves, in order to understand how this works. And eventually God was removed completely. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't, I mean, I think, yes. Uh, so Alejandro is saying that science has progressed and uh, exponentially from the 19th, 20th centuries. I would never dare say that science has not progressed. I mean, I can look to nations that don't believe in God and marvel at what they've done scientifically. The Babylonian culture, we still use the 360 degrees, the 60 minutes, the 60 seconds. Uh, we can look to um, Islamic countries in terms of uh, certain mathematics, you know, creating the number zero and these kind of abstractions. Uh, so I would never say that say that 
science, science can't advance or technology can't advance. The problem is, is should we do this? And how are we going to use this knowledge? So what we have is um, we no longer ask, should we do it? We say, can we do it? That's the only prerogative we have in terms of doing something. Uh, and we, we pass off ethics. We see that in social technologies like Facebook and other social media sites where they disavow of ethics because that's something that they can worry about even though they knew themselves at the beginning that it would do damage. Because the question wasn't asked, should we do this? But can we do this? And, that, and so they pass the buck onto someone else. So often in technological advancement, I'm not saying that they can't advance, but I'm not saying that they always should. We created the atomic bomb. Should we have nuclear warfare? Should we have? So, yes. Did you want to say something? Oh, okay. No, I was just saying, I don't understand why we're so focused on cars because, um, Obviously, it is important to some scientific um, disciplines, but not to all. And in fact, uh, you go to a, uh, go to your physician with a real condition, and you and he tells you you have such and such, and you say to him the first thing you say to him, what what caused it? And he just laughs. There is, <laughs> there is no explanation. He has no explanation. He's going to treat the symptoms in the social sciences. Uh, we used to cause was once a, a kind of thing it was related to theories, but in fact now we look at processes and developments uh, because things are constantly happening and uh, going on. So this emphasis on cause, I don't get it. <laughs> Great. I, I you know so, you know I think that we we really ask for causes in a. Uh, yeah, you're right. We don't always need to know causes, but I think that people place a lot of emphasis on cause because they want to know, um, I guess, how to control or how to understand how something works. Yeah, and then they learn that it was a matter of a complex situation, of a complex uh, dialogue of a comp you know uh, and things like that i think it's of an illusion to just sort of be so focused on it uh, uh, for certain purposes obviously uh, but it doesn't have that big a place in science even in in in, in, in certainly not in the practical sciences and right right that's a good word does it in theology causes well, I mean, I mean, I think it's the same. Like sometimes we don't always know the cause. I mean, if we want to get to the root of why we do what we do, let's say some simple pattern, sometimes you just can't get to the cause. And sometimes people, I mean, sometimes people will navel gaze. Sometimes it's important to try to understand how did something come about. But sometimes people spend so long trying to figure out the cause that they never deal with the symptoms or feel responsible for the behavior. And so sometimes cause, interestingly, we are never given in the Bible the cause of evil. 
We have the origin of human sin, but we don't know how the snake got into the garden. You have this very small phrase that Jesus says, and Satan fell like lightning. But to build a whole theology of cause around that is tenuous at best. The Bible itself does not give us a chapter on where does Satan come from and why does God allow the devil to come before him and make requests. We're not given the cause. So there's many things. Uh, or how does the cross actually work? You know, it's, it's really puzzling. We, we do our best to explain what we do know about it. But to try to get to the cause of the metaphysics is... I think impossible, but we can go a long way in explaining a lot, but it's how does the eternal God die? How does, how does that happen? So there's lots of mysteries in our faith, but it doesn't mean that we have mysteries in our faith and therefore we aren't to try to talk about it at all. Just believe. No, we have a lot. We can go a long way. I like to talk about um, theological discourse, not always, but sometimes it's um, like negative art. Negative art is where you draw the image by not drawing the image. You draw everything around the image, and then the image comes out like a, like a silhouette. You know, the silhouette of like a, a face that is all white and all around it's black. Well, you draw the black, and then the white face, the, the silhouette shows up. That's called negative art. Sometimes I think theology is like that. You try to describe everything around something and then a, an image emerges, but it's impossible for us at times to, to actually draw the silhouette ourselves. We have to look all around it and then the image of what God has done or God says makes sense. Um, yes? You know, um, uh, to take this, take this down to something practical again and small <laughs> is <laughs> if you think of a child coming into the house and he's got some condition or or he's got a sore he broke a finger or something like that and then parents say well what caused that what caused that and the fact of the matter is the there is sometimes asking for a cause when you see something is like deflecting from yourself that oh my gosh may I have did I do something did I raise this child wrong do you see what I'm saying this cause thing is a, a little illusion yeah sometimes I suppose God made my brain function in a way strange cause are you saying that he caused it <laughs> I have to deflect from myself <laughs> No, I think that there's sometimes it's a problem to try to get to causes and sometimes it's helpful. Tim? I guess I'm not so interested in causes, just why do things happen? Is in, like, in the context of this conversation, um, <clears throat> I guess in, it seems like the more that we've come to understand natural causes through science, the, the more that realm expands, the smaller the realm of, of things that we say, oh, God did that. Like, right. Yep. God of the gaps. Like yeah. That 
scientific understanding and we push that towards the study of origins and saying well maybe we didn't need god to make us at all maybe we just all happen maybe it's just a long chain of cause and effect from the very beginning i think that's kind of where i mean in a christian perspective we need to understand that yes we can have science and understand scientific causes and effects but we need also to retain something from the ancient like Hebraic way of looking at the world that saw God as the ultimate cause. Right. I mean, yeah. That's why I was. So Tim was saying that the more we, we try to explain causes for everything, and the more it expands, the more God seems to be diminished in the God of the gaps type of way. Uh, but we've become so much about causes, like in the science of romance or in the science of happiness, we try to say the cause of something. Um, uh, even though if you really look and try like if you read it superficially, you're like, oh, it just explains why, you know, why it's not really romance. It's just an evolutionary mechanism. But uh, but if you look really deeply, you start asking questions on why they say what, why do they choose these causes rather than other causes? As if one cause is, you know, as if it's one cause to one effect, to one effect, to one effect. But, it, but things don't happen linearly. Um, at that way. And so just as Carla was saying that uh, there can be there can be complexities on why the things result as they do and why they and they build on each other. But yeah, I mean, we we did science has had that tendency to try to name the cause and the cause and the cause and to go infinitely backwards to explain away God. There's no need, though. There's always the question, what causes the Big Bang? first cause but i think that we can go further than just first cause uh we can we can say that god is um he sustains it by his powerful word that's in hebrews uh and so yeah we, we can look to god being someone who is sovereign over causes and sovereign over effects uh even if we can't always name exactly how he is but yeah thomas you had something uh, it was a wild pass. I was going to say that if, if I get in a car accident tomorrow, my insurance company's going to want to know who caused it. <laughs> so. Acts of God. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Sorry. That's awesome. Well, uh, let's finish. Uh, I think it's uh, well past time. It's quite late in Calgary, uh, quite early. I can even see the sunshine, Andrea. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> But I'm so glad to see you all on Zoom and in the room. Uh, we've lost about half the people on Zoom and half the people in the room, or maybe more than half. So I think that means it's done. Okay. Well, have a, have a good evening. Thanks for joining Thanks. us. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.